0: 4.46, chapters 62 and 63 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 2.15. Welcome
1: to CraftLit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road. New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 446, The Importance of Being Learned. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. I hope you are well. I am doing pretty well, actually, which is a surprise because, because it's tax season and that's generally not my favorite time of the year. But but that is countermanded by the fact of the chapters we have today and the fact that Tara Worcester, Worcesterweight on Ravelry managed to repair my son's DNA bracelet that he bought me at a museum a year ago that I inadvertently broke because I just, I'd worn it too much. It is beaded and it's beaded in a way that makes it look like a double helix. And Tara fixed it. She shared it this week on the Crafty Chat and there will be a link in the show notes that takes you to the proper time code so that you can get a look at how great a job she did on this. And she, she's the one with all the information. You can contact her on Facebook or Ravelry. I'm sure she will let you know what it's called, how she did what she did is called. And you can just marvel at the gorgeousness, cause it is, she, she's just amazing. So that was my happily little crafty bit today because I can't do that kind of beating even remotely, but she did and it's great. Great, like our chapters today are great. Because we have chapters 62 and 63 today and hokey smokies. Ah, it was a weird episode title today. I had a hard time thinking of one. And then I realized this is a chapter set where your listening payoff is slightly higher, I think, than you might get from elsewhere in this, in this book so far. Anyway, because of that, I don't want to say anything until you're done listening to it, because we'll have so much cool stuff to talk about afterwards. And, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to have a couple of chapters where the duma of Duma's writing just washes over you. Because we've been working our way towards one of the Count's big acts of revenge. And you're going to see the beginning of it today. And it's a doozy. And we'll talk about how you feel about it after you listen. So, ah, good stuff. Chapters 62 and 63 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Here we go.
0: Chapter 62. Ghosts. At first sight, the exterior of the house at Auteuil gave no indications of splendor nothing one would expect from the destined residence of the magnificent Count of Monte Cristo. But this simplicity was according to the will of its master, who positively ordered nothing to be altered outside. The splendour was within. Indeed, almost before the door opened the scene changed. M. Bertuccio had outdone himself in the taste displayed in furnishing, and in the rapidity with which it was executed. It is told that the Duc d'Antin removed in a single night a whole avenue of trees that annoyed Louis XIV. In three days M. Bertuccio planted an entirely bare court with poplars, large spreading sycamores to shade the different parts of the house, and in the foreground, instead of the usual paving-stones, half hidden by the grass, there extended a lawn, but that morning lay down and upon which the water was yet glistening. For the rest the orders had been issued by the count he himself had given a plan to bertuccio marking the spot where each tree was to be planted and the shape and extent of the lawn which was to take the place of the paving stones thus the house had become unrecognizable and bertuccio himself declared that he scarcely knew it encircled as it was by a framework of trees the overseer would not have objected while he was about it To have made some improvements in the garden but the count had positively forbidden it to be touched bertuccio made amends however by loading the antechambers staircases and mantelpieces with flowers what above all manifested the shrewdness of the steward and the profound science of the master the one in carrying out the ideas of the other was that this house which prepared only the night before so sad and gloomy impregnated with that sickly smell one can almost fancy to be the smell of time had in a single day acquired the aspect of life was scented with its master's favourite perfumes and had the very light regulated according to his wish when the count arrived he had under his touch his books and arms his eyes rested upon his favourite pictures his dogs whose caresses he loved, welcomed him in the antechamber. The birds, whose songs delighted him, cheered him with their music, and the house, awakened from its long sleep like the sleeping beauty in the wood, lived, sang, and bloomed like the houses we have long cherished, and in which, when we are forced to leave them, we leave a part of our souls. The servants passed gaily along the fine courtyard, some belonging to the kitchens, gliding down the stairs— restored but the previous day as if they had always inhabited the house, others, filling the coach-houses where the equipage, encased and numbered, appeared to have been installed for the last fifty years, and in the stables the horses replied with neighs to the grooms, who spoke to them with much more respect than many servants pay their masters. The library was divided into two parts on either side of the wall— AND CONTAINED UPWARDS OF TWO THOUSAND VOLUMES. ONE DIVISION WAS ENTIRELY DEVOTED TO NOVELS, AND EVEN THE VOLUME WHICH HAD BEEN PUBLISHED, BUT THE DAY BEFORE WAS TO BE SEEN IN ITS PLACE IN ALL THE DIGNITY OF ITS RED AND GOLD BINDING. ON THE OTHER SIDE OF THE HOUSE, TO MATCH WITH THE LIBRARY, WAS THE CONSERVATORY, ORNAMENTED WITH RARE FLOWERS THAT BLOOMED IN CHINA JARS, AND IN THE MIDST OF THE GREENHOUSE, MARVELOUS ALIKE TO SIGHT AND SMELL WAS A BILLIARD-TABLE, which looked as if it had been abandoned during the past hour by players who had left the balls on the cloth. One chamber alone had been respected by the magnificent Bertuccio. Before this room, to which you could ascend by the grand and go out by the back staircase, the servants passed with curiosity, and Bertuccio with terror. At five o'clock precisely, the count arrived before the house at Otoy, followed by Ali, bertuccio was awaiting his arrival with impatience mingled with uneasiness he hoped for some compliments while at the same time he feared to have frowns monte cristo descended into the courtyard walked all over the house without giving any sign of approbation or pleasure until he entered his bedroom situated on the opposite side to the closed room then he approached a little piece of furniture made of rosewood which he had noticed at a previous visit. "'That can only be to hold gloves,' he said. "'Will your excellency deign to open it?' said the delighted Bertuccio. "'And you will find the gloves in it.' Elsewhere the Count found everything he required—smelling bottles, cigars, knick-knacks. "'Good,' he said. And Monsieur Bertuccio left enraptured, so great, so powerful— and real was the influence exercised by this man over all who surrounded him at precisely six o'clock the clatter of horses hoofs was heard at the entrance door it was our captain of Spahi who had arrived on medea i am sure i am the first cried morel i did it on purpose to have you a minute to myself before everyone came "'Julie and Emmanuel have a thousand things to tell you. "'Ah, really, this is magnificent. "'But tell me, Count, will your people take care of my horse?' "'Do not alarm yourself, my dear Maximilian. "'They understand.' "'I mean, because he wants petting. "'If you had seen of what a pace he came, like the wind.' "'I should think so.' a horse that cost 5000 francs said monte cristo in the tone which a father would use towards a son do you regret them asked morel with his open laugh i certainly not replied the count no i should only regret if the horse had not proved good it is so good that i have distanced monsieur de Renaud, one of the best riders in france and Monsieur Debray, who both mount the minister's Arabians, and close on their heels are the horses of Madame Danglars, who always go at six leagues an hour. Then they would follow you? asked Monte Cristo. See, sí, they are here. And at the same minute a carriage with smoking horses, accompanied by two mounted gentlemen, arrived at the gate which opened before them. The carriage drove round and stopped at the steps. "'followed by the horseman. "'The instant de had touched the ground, "'he was at the carriage-door. "'He offered his hand to the baroness, "'who, descending it, took it with a peculiarity of manner "'imperceptible to every one but Monte Cristo. "'But nothing escaped the Count's notice, "'and he observed a little note, "'passed with the facility that indicates frequent practice, "'from the hand of Madame Danglars "'to that of the minister's secretary.' After his wife, the banker descended, as pale as though he had issued from his tomb instead of his carriage. Madame Danglars threw a rapid and inquiring glance, which could only be interpreted by Monte-Cristo, around the courtyard, over the peristyle, and across the front of the house, then, repressing a slight emotion which must have been seen on her countenance, if she had not kept her colour, she ascended the steps, saying to Morel, "'Sir,' If you were a friend of mine, I should ask if you would sell your horse. Morrel smiled with an expression very like a grimace, and then turned round to Monte Cristo, as if to ask him to extricate him from this embarrassment. The count understood him. "Ah, madame," he said, "why did you not make that request of me?" "With you, sir," replied the baroness, "one can wish for nothing. "'One is so sure to obtain it. "'If it were so with M. Morel—' "'Unfortunately,' replied the Count, "'I am a witness that M. Morel cannot give up his horse, "'his honour being engaged in keeping it.' "'How so?' "'He laid a wager. "'He would tame Medea in the space of six months. "'You understand now that if he were to get rid of the animal before the time named—' he would not only lose his bet, but people would say he was afraid. And a brave captain of Spahi cannot risk this, even to gratify a pretty woman, which is, in my opinion, one of the most sacred obligations in the world. "'You see my position, madame,' said Morel, bestowing a grateful smile on Monte Cristo. "'It seems to me,' said Danglars in his coarse tone, ill concealed by a forced smile, that you have already got horses enough. Madame Danglars seldom allowed remarks of this kind to pass unnoticed, but to the surprise of the young people she pretended not to hear it and said nothing. Monte Cristo smiled at her unusual humility and showed her two immense porcelain jars over which wound marine plants of a size and delicacy that nature alone could produce the baroness was astonished why said she you could plant one of the chestnut trees in the Tuileries inside how can such enormous jars have been manufactured ah madame replied monte cristo you must not ask of us the manufacturers of fine porcelain such a question it is the work of another age constructed by the genii of earth and water how so at what period can that have been i do not know i have only heard that an emperor of china had an oven built expressly and that in this oven twelve jars like this were successfully baked two broke from the heat of the fire the other ten were sunk three hundred fathoms deep into the sea the sea knowing what was required of her "'threw over her weeds, encircled them with coral, "'and encrusted them with shells. "'The whole was cemented by two hundred years "'beneath these almost impervious depths, "'for a revolution carried away the emperor "'who wished to make the trial, "'and only left the documents proving the manufacture of the jars, "'and their descent into the sea. "'At the end of two hundred years,' the documents were found and they thought of bringing up the jars divers descended in machines made expressly on the discovery into the bay where they were thrown but of ten three only remained the rest having been broken by the waves i am fond of these jars upon which perhaps misshapen frightful monsters have fixed their cold dull eyes and in which myriads of small fish have slept, seeking a refuge from the pursuit of their enemies. Meanwhile, Danglars, who had cared little for curiosities, was mechanically tearing off the blossoms of a splendid orange-tree, one after another. When he had finished with the orange-tree, he began at the cactus. But this, not being so easily plucked as the orange-tree, pricked him dreadfully. He shuddered, and rubbed his eyes as though awaking from a dream. Sir, said Monte Cristo to him, I do not recommend my pictures to you, who possess such splendid paintings. But nevertheless, here are two Hobema, a Paul Potter, a Miris, two by Gerard Dow, a Raphael, a Van Dyck, a Zuberan, and two or three by Murillo, worth looking at. Stay, Said Debray, I recognize this Hobema. Ah, indeed. Yes, it was proposed for the museum, which I believe does not contain one, said Monte Cristo. No, and yet they refuse to buy it. Why? said Chateau You pretend not to know, because government was not rich enough. Ah, pardon me, said Chateau I have heard of these things every day during the last eight years, and I cannot understand them yet.' "'You will by and by,' said Debray. "'I think not,' replied Chateau renault "'Major Bartolomeo Cavalcanti and Count Andrea Cavalcanti,' announced Baptistin. "'A black satin stock, fresh from the maker's hands, gray mustaches, a bold eye, a major's uniform ornamented with three medals and five crosses—in fact, the thorough bearing of an old soldier. Such was the appearance of Major Bartolomeo Cavalcanti, that tender father with whom we are already acquainted. Close to him, dressed in entirely new clothes, advanced smilingly, Count Andrea Cavalcanti, the dutiful son, whom we also know the three young people were talking together. On the entrance of the newcomers their eyes glanced from father to son, and then, naturally enough, rested on the latter, whom they began criticizing. Gavalcanti, said de Bray. "'A fine name,' said Morel. "'Yes,' said Chateaurenaud. "'These Italians are well-named and badly dressed.' "'You are fastidious, Chateaurenaud,' replied de Bray. "'Those clothes are well cut and quite new.' "'That is just what I find fault with. "'That gentleman appears to be well dressed "'for the first time in his life.' "'Who are these gentlemen?' asked Danglars of Monte Cristo. "'You heard. Cavalcanti.' "'That tells me their name, and nothing else.' "'Ah, true, you do not know the Italian nobility.' THE CAVALCANTI ARE ALL DESCENDED FROM PRINCES. HAVE THEY ANY FORTUNE? AN ENORMOUS ONE. WHAT DO THEY DO? TRY TO SPEND IT ALL. THEY HAVE SOME BUSINESS WITH YOU, I THINK, FROM WHAT THEY TOLD ME THE DAY BEFORE YESTERDAY. I, INDEED, INVITED THEM HERE TODAY ON YOUR ACCOUNT. I WILL INTRODUCE YOU TO THEM. BUT THEY APPEAR TO SPEAK FRENCH. "'With very pure accent,' said Danglars, "'The son has been educated in a college in the south, "'I believe near Marseilles. "'You will find him quite enthusiastic.' "'Upon what subject?' asked Madame Danglars. "'The French ladies, Madame. "'He has made up his mind to take a wife from Paris.' "'A fine idea, that of his,' said Danglars shrugging his shoulders madame danglars looked at her husband with an expression which at any other time would have indicated a storm but for the second time she controlled herself the baron appears sought for to-day said monte cristo to her are they going to put him in the ministry not yet i think more likely he has been speculating on the bourse and has lost money Monsieur and Madame de Villefort! cried Baptistin. They entered. Monsieur de Villefort, notwithstanding his self-control, was visibly affected, and when Monte Cristo touched his hand, he felt it tremble. Certainly women alone know how to dissimulate, said Monte Cristo to himself, glancing at Madame Danglars, who was smiling on the procureur and embracing his wife. After a short time the Count saw Bertuccio, who until then had been occupied on the other side of the house, glide into an adjoining room. He went to him. "'What do you want, Monsieur Bertuccio?' said he. "'Your Excellency has not stated the number of guests.' "'Ah, true.' "'How many covers?' "'Count for yourself.' "'Is everyone here, Your Excellency?' yes bertuccio glanced through the door which was ajar the count watched him good heavens he exclaimed what is the matter said the count that woman that woman which the one with a white dress and so many diamonds the fair one madame donglar i do not know her name but it is she sir it is she "'Whom do you mean?' "'The woman of the garden. "'She that was Encente "'she who was walking while she waited for—' Bertuccio stood at the open door with his eyes starting and his hair on end. "'Waiting for whom?' Bertuccio, without answering, pointed to Villefort with something of the gesture Macbeth used to point out Banquo. "'Oh! Oh!' he at length muttered. "'Do you see?' "'What? Who?' "'Him!' "'Him? Monsieur de Villefort, the King's attorney?' "'Certainly I see him.' "'Then I did not kill him.' "'Really, I think you are going mad, good Bertuccio,' said the Count. "'He is not dead.' "'No, you see plainly, he is not dead.' "'Instead of striking between the sixth and seventh left ribs, as your countrymen do. "'You must have struck higher or lower, and life is very tenacious in these lawyers. "'Or rather, there is no truth in anything you have told me. "'It was a fright of the imagination, a dream of your fancy. "'You went to sleep full of thoughts of vengeance. "'They weighed heavily upon your stomach. "'You had the nightmare. "'That's all? "'Come.' Calm yourself and reckon them up. Monsieur and Madame de Villefort, two. Monsieur and Madame Danglars, four. Monsieur de Chateaurenau, Monsieur de Bray, Monsieur Morel, seven. Major Bartolomeo Cavalcanti, eight. Eight, repeated Bertuccio. Stop. You are in a shocking hurry to be off. You forget one of my guests. Lean a little to the left. Stay. Look at Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti, the young man in a black coat, looking at Murillo's Madonna. Now he is turning. This time Bertuccio would have uttered an exclamation, had not a look from Monte Cristo silenced him. "'Benedetto!' he muttered. "'Fatality!' "'Half-past six o'clock has just struck, Monsieur Bertuccio,' said the Count severely. I order dinner at that hour, and I do not like to wait. And he returned to his guests, while Bertuccio, leaning against the wall, succeeded in reaching the dining-room. Five minutes afterwards the doors of the drawing-room were thrown open, and Bertuccio, appearing, said with a violent effort, The dinner awaits. The Count of Monte Cristo offered his arm to Madame de Villefort. Monsieur de Villefort, he said, will you conduct the Baroness d'Anglard? Villefort complied, and they passed on to the dining-room. End of chapter 62 Chapter 63 The Dinner It was evident that one sentiment affected all the guests on entering the dining-room. Each one asked what strange influence had brought them to this house, and yet, astonished, even uneasy though they were, they still felt that they would not like to be absent. The recent events, the solitary and eccentric position of the Count, his enormous, nay, almost incredible fortune, should have made men cautious, and have altogether prevented ladies visiting a house where there was no one of their own sex to receive them. And yet, curiosity had been enough to lead them to overleap the bounds of prudence and decorum, and all present, even including Cavalcanti and his son, notwithstanding the stiffness of the one and the carelessness of the other, were thoughtful on finding themselves assembled at the house of this incomprehensible man. Madame Danglars had started when Villefort, on the count's invitation, offered his arm, and Villefort felt that his glance was uneasy beneath his gold spectacles when he felt the arm of the baroness press upon his own. None of this had escaped the count, and even by this mere contact of individuals the scene had already acquired considerable interest for an observer. Monsieur de Villefort had on the right hand Madame Danglars, on his left Morel. The count was seated between Madame de Villefort and Danglars. The other seats were filled by Debray, who was placed between the two Cavalcanti, and by Chateau Renaud, seated between Madame de Villefort and Morel. The repast was magnificent. Monte Cristo had endeavoured completely to overturn the Parisian ideas and to feed the curiosity as much as the appetite of his guests. It was an Oriental feast that he offered to them, but of such a kind as the Arabian fairies might be supposed to prepare. Every delicious fruit that the four quarters of the globe could provide was heaped in vases from China and jars from Japan. Rare birds, retaining their most brilliant plumage, enormous fish spread upon massive silver dishes, together with every wine produced in the archipelago, Asia Minor, or the Cape, sparkling in bottles, whose grotesque shape seemed to give an additional flavor to the draft. All these like one of the displays with which Apicius of old gratified his guests, passed in view before the eyes of the astonished Parisians, who understood that it was possible to expend a thousand louis upon a dinner for ten persons, but only on the condition of eating pearls like Cleopatra, or drinking refined gold like Lorenzo de' Medici. Monte Cristo noticed the general astonishment and began laughing and joking about it, "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'you will admit that when arrived at a certain degree of fortune, "'the superfluities of life are all that can be desired, "'and the ladies will allow that, "'after having risen to a certain eminence of position, "'the ideal alone can be more exalted. "'Now, to follow out this reasoning, "'what is the marvellous? "'That which we do not understand.' What is it that we really desire? That which we cannot obtain. Now, to see things which I cannot understand, to procure impossibilities, these are the study of my life. I gratify my wishes by two means, my will and my money. I take as much interest in the pursuit of some whim as you do, Monsieur Danglars, in promoting a new railway line. You, Monsieur de Villefort, in condemning a culprit to death. You, Monsieur de Bray, in pacifying a kingdom. You, Monsieur de Chateaurenau, in pleasing a woman. And you, Morel, in breaking a horse that no one can ride. For example, you see these two fish, one brought from fifty leagues beyond St. Petersburg, the other five leagues from Naples. "'is it not amusing to see them both on the same table?' "'What are the two fish?' asked Danglars. "'Monsieur Renaud, who has lived in Russia, "'will tell you the name of one, "'and Major Cavalcanti, who is in Italian, "'will tell you the name of the other.' "'This one is, I think, a sterlet,' said Renaud. "'And that one, if I mistake not,' "'A lamprey.' "'Just so. "'Now, Monsieur Danglars, "'ask these gentlemen where they are caught.' Sterlets, said Chateaurenaud, "'are only found in the Volga.' "'And,' said Cavalcanti, "'I know that Lake Fusaro alone supplies lampreys of that size.' "'Exactly. "'One comes from the Volga.' and the other from Lake Fusaro. Impossible, cried all the guests simultaneously. Well, this is just what amuses me, said Monte Cristo. I am like Nero, Cupitor, Impossibilium, and that is what is amusing you at this moment. This fish, which seems so exquisite to you, is very likely no better than perch or salmon, but it seemed impossible to procure it. And here it is. But how could you have these fish brought to France? Oh, nothing more easy. Each fish was brought over in a cask, one filled with river, herbs, and weeds, the other with rushes and lake plants. They were placed in a wagon built on purpose, and thus the sterlet lived twelve days, the lamprey eight, and both were alive when my cook seized them, "'killing one with milk and the other with wine.' "'You do not believe me, Monsieur Danglars. "'I cannot help doubting,' answered Danglars with his stupid smile. "'Baptistine,' said the Count, "'have the other fish brought in, "'the sterlet and the lamprey which came in the other casks, "'and which are yet alive.' Danglars opened his bewildered eyes. "'The company clapped their hands,' Four servants carried in two casks covered with aquatic plants, and in each of which was breathing a fish similar to those on the table. But why have two of each sort? asked Danglars. Merely because one might have died, carelessly answered Monte Cristo. You are certainly an extraordinary man, said Danglars, and philosophers may well say it is a fine thing to be rich.' "'And to have ideas,' added Madame Dunglard. "'Oh, do not give me credit for this, Madame. It was done by the Romans, who much esteemed them, and Pliny relates that they sent slaves from Ostia to Rome, who carried on their heads fish which he calls the mules, and which from description must probably be the goldfish.' It was also considered a luxury to have them alive, it being an amusing sight to see them die, for when dying they change colour three or four times, and, like the rainbow when it disappears, pass through all the prismatic shades, after which they were sent to the kitchen. Their agony formed part of their merit. If they were not seen alive, they were despised when dead." Yes, said de Bray, but then Ostia is only a few leagues from Rome. True, said Monte Cristo, but what would be the use of living eighteen hundred years after Lucullus, if we can do no better than he could? The two cavalcanti opened their enormous eyes, but had the good sense not to say anything. All this is very extraordinary, said Chateau Renaud. Still, what I admire the most, I confess, is the marvelous promptitude with which your orders are executed. Is it not true that you only brought this house five or six days ago? Certainly not longer. Well, I am sure it is quite transformed since last week. If I remember rightly, it had another entrance and the courtyard was paved and empty, while today... We have a splendid lawn, bordered by trees which appear to be a hundred years old. Why not? I am fond of grass and shade, said Monte Cristo. Yes, said Madame de Villefort. The door was toward the road before, and on the day of my miraculous escape, you brought me into the house from the road. I remember. Yes, madame, said Monte Cristo but I preferred having an entrance which would allow me to see the Bois de Boulogne over my gate. "'In four days?' said Morel. "'It is extraordinary.' "'Indeed,' said Renaud. "'it seems quite miraculous to make a new house out of an old one, for it was very old, and dull, too. I recollect coming from my mother to look at it when Monsieur de saint meran advertised it for sale.' Two or three years ago, Monsieur de Saint Meran said Madame de Villefort. Then this house belonged to Monsieur de Saint Meran before you bought it. It appears so, replied Monte Cristo. Is it possible that you do not know of whom you purchased it? Quite so. My steward transacts all this business for me. It is certainly ten years. "'since the house had been occupied,' said Chateau Renaud, "'And it was quite melancholy to look at it, "'with the blinds closed, the doors locked, "'and the weeds in the court. "'Really, if the house had not belonged "'to the father-in-law of the procureur, "'one might have thought it some accursed place "'where a horrible crime had been committed.' "'Villefort, who had hitherto not tasted "'the three or four glasses of rare wine "'which were placed before him,' Here, tuck one, and drank it off. Monte Cristo allowed a short time to elapse, and then said, It is singular, Baron, but the same idea came across me the first time I came here. It looked so gloomy I should never have bought it if my steward had not taken the matter into his own hands. Perhaps the fellow had been bribed by the notary. It is probable, Stammered out Villefort, trying to smile, but I can assure you that I had nothing to do with any such proceeding. This house is part of Valentine's marriage portion, and Monsieur de saint wished to sell it. For if it had remained another year or two uninhabited, it would have fallen to ruin. It was Morel's turn to become pale. There was above all one room, continued Monte Cristo. Very plain in appearance, hung with red damask, which I know not why appeared to me quite dramatic. Why so? said Danglars. Why dramatique? Can we account for instinct? said Monte Cristo. Are there not some places where we seem to breathe sadness? Why we cannot tell. It is a chain of recollections an idea which carries you back to other times, to other places, which very likely have no connection with the present time and place. And there is something in this room which reminds me forcibly of the chamber of the Marquise de Ganges, or Desdemona. Stay, since we have finished dinner, I will show it to you, and then we will take coffee in the garden. After dinner, the play. Monte Cristo looked inquiringly at his guests. Madame de Villefort rose. Monte Cristo did the same, and the rest followed their example. Villefort and Madame Danglars remained for a moment, as if rooted to their seats. They questioned each other with vague and stupid glances. "Did you hear?" said Madame Danglars. "We must go," replied Villefort, offering his arm. The others, attracted by curiosity, were already scattered in different parts of the house, for they thought the visit would not be limited to the one room, and that at the same time they would obtain a view of the rest of the building, of which Monte Cristo had created a palace. Each one went out by the open doors. Monte Cristo waited for the two who remained. Then, when they had passed, he brought up the rear, and on his face was a smile, which, if they could have understood it, would have alarmed them much more than a visit to the room they were about to enter. They began by walking through the apartments, many of which were fitted up in the Eastern style, with cushions and divans instead of beds, and pipes instead of furniture. The drawing-rooms were decorated with the rarest pictures by the old masters. The boudoir hung with the draperies from China of fanciful colours fantastic design, and wonderful texture. At length, they arrived at the famous room. There was nothing particular about it, excepting that, although daylight had disappeared, it was not lighted, and everything in it was old-fashioned, while the rest of the rooms had been redecorated. These two causes were enough to give it a gloomy aspect. "'Oh!' cried Madame de Villefort, It is really frightful. Madame Danglars tried to utter a few words, but was not heard. Many observations were made, the import of which was a unanimous opinion that there was something sinister about the room. Is it not so? asked Monte Cristo. Look at that large, clumsy bed, hung with such gloomy, blood-coloured drapery, and those two crayon portraits that have faded from the dampness. Do not they not seem to say with their pale lips and staring eyes? We have seen. Villefort became livid. Madame Danglars fell into a long seat placed near the chimney. Oh, said Madame de Villefort, smiling, are you courageous enough to sit down upon the very seat, perhaps, upon which the crime was committed? Madame Danglars rose suddenly. And then, said Monte Cristo, "'This is not all.' "'What is there more?' said de Bray, "'who had not failed to notice the agitation of Madame Donglar. "'Or oh, what else is there?' said Donglar. "'For at present I cannot say that I have seen anything extraordinary. "'What do you say, Monsieur Cavalcanti?' "'Ah,' said he, "'we have at Pise Ugolino's tower at Ferrara.' "'Tasso's prison. At Rimini, the room of Francesca and Paolo.' "'Yes, but you have not this little staircase,' said Monte Cristo, opening a door concealed by the drapery. "'Look at it, and tell me what you think of it.' "'What a wicked-looking crooked staircase,' said Chateau Renaud with a smile.' I do not know whether the wine of Chios produces melancholy, but certainly everything appears to me black in this house," said Debray. Ever since Valentine's dowry had been mentioned, Morel had been silent and sad. "Can you imagine?" said Monte Cristo. "Some Othello or Abbe de Gonge, one stormy dark night, descending these stairs step by step." Carrying a load which he wishes to hide from the sight of man, if not from God. Madame Danglars half fainted on the arm of Villefort, who was obliged to support himself against the wall. Ah, madame! cried Debray. What is the matter with you? How pale you look! It is very evident what is the matter with her, said Madame de Villefort. Monsieur de Monte Cristo. Is relating horrible stories to us, doubtless intending to frighten us to death. Yes," said Villefort. I "Really, Count, you frighten the ladies." What is the matter?" asked Debray in a whisper of Madame Donglars. "Nothing," she replied with a violent effort. "I, I want air. That is all." Will you come into the garden?" said Debray, advancing towards the back staircase. No, no, she answered. I would rather remain here. Are you really frightened, madame? said Monte Cristo. Oh, no, sir, said Madame Danglars. But you suppose scenes in a manner which gives them the appearance of reality. Ah, yes, said Monte Cristo, smiling. It is all a matter of imagination. Why should we not imagine this the apartment of an honest mother? and this bed with red hangings, a bed visited by the goddess Lucina, and that mysterious staircase, the passage through which, not to disturb their sleep, the doctor and nurse pass, or even the father carrying the sleeping child. Here, Madame Danglars, instead of being calmed by the soft picture, uttered a groan and fainted. Madame Danglars is ill, said Villefort. It would be better to take her to her carriage. Oh, mon Dieu! said Monte Cristo. And I have forgotten my smelling bottle. I have mine, said Madame de Villefort, and she passed over to Monte Cristo a bottle full of the same kind of red liquid whose good properties the count had tested on Edward. Ah, said Monte Cristo, taking it from her hand. Yes, she said. At your advice, I have made the trial. And have you succeeded? I think so. Madame Danglars was carried into the adjoining room. Monte Cristo dropped a very small portion of the red liquid upon her lips. She returned to consciousness. Ah! she cried. What a frightful dream! Villefort pressed her hand to let her know it was not a dream. They looked for Monsieur Danglars, but as he was not especially interested in poetical ideas, he had gone into the garden and was talking with Major Cavalcanti on the projected railway from Lécorne to Florence. Monte Cristo seemed in despair. He took the arm of Madame Danglars, and conducted her into the garden, where they found Danglars taking coffee between the Cavalcanti. "'Really, Madame,' he said, "'did I alarm you much?' "'Oh, no, sir,' She answered. But, you know, things impress us differently, according to the mood of our minds. Villefort forced a laugh. And then, you know, he said, an idea, a supposition, is sufficient. Well, said Monte Cristo, you may believe me if you like, but it is my opinion that a crime has been committed in this house. Take care. Said Madame de Villefort. The king's attorney is here. Ah, replied Monte Cristo. Since that is the case, I will take advantage of his presence to make my declaration. Your declaration? said Villefort. Yes, before witnesses. Oh, this is very interesting, said Debray. If there really has been a crime, we will investigate it. There has been a crime, said Monte Cristo. Come this way, gentlemen. Come, Monsieur Villefort, for a declaration to be available should be made before the competent authorities. He then took Villefort's arm, and at the same time holding that of Madame Danglars under his own, he dragged the procureur to the plantain tree where the shade was thickest. All the other guests followed. Stay. Said Monte Cristo, here in this very spot, and he stamped upon the ground, I had the earth dug up and fresh mould put in to refresh these old trees. Well, my man digging found a box, or rather the ironwork of a box, in the midst of which was the skeleton of a newly-born infant. Monte Cristo felt the arm of Madame Danglars stiffen while that of Villefort trembled. "'A newly-born infant?' repeated Debray. "'This affair becomes serious.' "'Well,' said Chateau Renaud, "'I was not wrong just now, then, "'when I said that houses had souls and faces like men, "'and that their exteriors carried the impress of their characters. "'This house was gloomy because it was remorseful. "'It was remorseful because it concealed a crime.' "'Who said it was a crime?' Asked Villefort with a last effort. How? Is it not a crime to bury a living child in a garden? cried Monte Cristo. And pray, what do you call such an action? But who said it was buried alive? Why bury it there if it were dead? This garden has never been a cemetery. What is done to infanticides in this country? asked Major Cavalcanti innocently. "'Oh, their heads are soon cut off,' said Danglars. "'Ah, indeed,' said Cavalcanti. "'I think so. Am I not right, Monsieur de Villefort?' asked Monte Cristo. "'Yes, Count,' replied Villefort, in a voice now scarcely human. Monte Cristo, seeing that the two persons for whom he had prepared this scene could scarcely endure it, and not wishing to carry it too far— said, Come, gentlemen, some coffee. We seem to have forgotten it. And he conducted the guests back to the table on the lawn. Indeed, Count, said Madame Danglars, I am ashamed to own it, but all your frightful stories have so upset me that I must beg you to let me sit down. And she fell into a chair. Monte Cristo bowed and went to Madame de Villefort. "'I think Madame Danglars again requires your bottle,' he said. "'But before Madame de Villefort could reach her friend, "'the procureur had found time to whisper to Madame Danglars, "'I must speak to you.' "'When?' "'Tomorrow.' "'Where?' "'In my office, or in the court, if you like. "'That is the surest place.' "'I will be there.' "'At this moment Madame de Villefort approached.' Thanks, my dear friend," said Madame Danglars, trying to smile. "It is over now, and I am much better." End of chapter 63.
1: So I wondered if it made sense to you now why I said the importance of being learned at the beginning of the show. Because this is more than like going to college learning. This is more than just pure book learning. It's the kind of stuff that you get from reading books that makes other books work really well and make a lot of sense and be rich and layered and a lot of fun. Because like uh, in the very beginning, when Dumas and the Count were gazing happily at Bertuccio's decorating of this place that he did in what, like 24 hours, 36 hours, 2000 books in one room and one whole section of that Novels, which is another way that you know that this is not England. This is, in fact, France, (laughs) because nobody be bragging about that many novels at this time. So you've got all these novels. You've got, you know, big, thick leather books bound with gilt edges and all that kind of crazy stuff, and such a sign of wealth. And you know that because we've read so many books that have talked about that, Jane Eyre being one in particular. Then you have Dumas putting into the Count's mouth a bunch of artists. And you probably remembered that Denglar, when the Count went to Danglars' house and saw the art on the walls, it was all either fakes that he didn't catch or kind of pedestrian artists. It would be like putting a cat poster up in a frame and saying, you know, look at my great work of art, which is not to say that there isn't a place and time for cat posters, because there is. But under a big, thick, wooden gilt, frame, probably not so much. I mean, unless you're trying to make a statement, which you could. But the artists that the Count mentions, they were all Dutch Golden Age masters, Flemish master, Italian, Spanish. He, he kind of got them all. Baroque Renaissance. He just tossed them all in there. And we know that they cost a lot of money because Chateau Renault made sure that we knew that. He also had one of my favorite lines in the chapter where looking at the Cavalcantes, he said, Dubré, said, oh, he's nicely dressed. He looks like he's wearing, you know, nice new clothes. What's the problem? Chateau Renaud, yes, he looks like he's well-dressed for the first time in his life. Perhaps one of the most cogent things anybody said during the entire two chapters, piercing and accurate. And somehow in this chapter, he made me think of Lord Byron. Maybe it's just because he was funny. I don't know. But I'll bet you, you knew that when the Count of Monte Cristo was talking about artists, number one, you knew they were real, and number two, because he was talking about them the way he did, they were probably good. And you don't need to know more than that, right? You don't need to know any more details. You just need to know which side of the aisle the Count is weighing in on. It will always be the side of taste and elegance and expense, great expense. And then in chapter 63, You have the mention of Ugolino's tower, Tasso's prison in Ferrara, and Francesco and Paolo. And you probably remember Ugolino and Francesco and Paolo because we've talked about them several times on the podcast before because of Dante's Inferno. Francesco and Paolo, Francesca married some dude and had the misfortune of falling in love with his younger brother, Paolo, and her husband ran them both through with a single sword strike, implying that they were rather close to each other when he did that. Ugolino was the guy who was caught up in one of the many civil wars that were going on in the uh, 1200s in Italy, and he behaved badly. And he was put into the last circle of hell by Dante. Uh, Paolo and Francesca were, were in the second where they were being buffeted by winds and they were in the lustful circle. Ugolino was down in the seventh circle, the frozen circle, which I know sounds strange to have the devil and all the really, really, really bad people down in a frozen circle, but it was frozen into inaction. They couldn't move, they couldn't do anything except what they were tormented to do. And in Ugolino's case, he and The other guy involved in their struggle, who also behaved badly. Ugolino was buried in a pit with the guy and he was gnawing on the other guy's head, the back of his head. So, charming people in life. And then uh, Tasso is interesting. Tasso's prison in Ferrara, this was a guy who they now think was bipolar. He was really, really well known as a poet. He was really kind of an extraordinary guy, but he lost it at one point and he was effectively into prison. Uh, it was supposed to be an asylum, but for him it was a, a prison. And people went and visited his cell. That was uh, one of the things that people like to do. So you have the, the Tower of Ugolino, you have the prison in Ferrara, and you have the Room of Francesco and Paolo. These are all places that people go as tourists back then. And now you have the Count's Room. At Otoy. <laughs> <laughs> And wasn't it fantastic? The story of the jars in the ocean with the weeds and the coral and all the sea monsters gazing upon the jars. And I just thought Dumas really did a great job of building mood in a way that had nothing to do really with what was going on in the Count's world, what he was trying to achieve, what he was trying to accomplish with the location and with the garden. But this jar story just sets us up perfectly. You know, it's like setting the ball and spiking the ball. So he sets the ball and then in the room, he spikes the ball. And in the process, he freaks pretty much everybody out. But there was also a moment of, I thought, great comedy when Danglar was pulling the Orange blossoms off of the orange tree, and then he moves on to the cactus, but finds out that it's not as friendly. <laughs> so oh, he gets all befuddled. <laughs> ah, Danglar! It's kind of easy, isn't it, to make fun of Danglar? He's become ridiculous in his middle age, whereas when he was younger, he was he was a threat, not a physical one, as we know, because he he chickened out from a fight, but definitely a existential threat and. In fact, a real honest to goodness threat to people's lives and livelihoods just by being clever and corrupt. So clever and corrupt get whacked a little bit in today's chapters, but we don't know what's coming of it, right? We only know that Madame Danglars and Monsieur Villefort are aware that they have been freaked out. There's no proof that the Count knows. Anything real, as far as they're concerned, he's just telling a story. But it's a little too close to home. Bertuccio knows that Benedetto is there, dressed as Andrea Calvacomte. and what's that all about? Because if he's the baby that was buried in the backyard, and and so what? There's no way that V4 and Madame Danglars are going to recognize him, right? I mean, he's their kid, sure, but they have no reason to think that this kid survived. So how is that going to fit into the Count's plans? That's just, that's a step further than I can figure out. Perhaps because I'm not that into retribution like the Count, but, but wow, he's got a pretty good setup going here. So we will find out more about how the Count's machinations are going to affect our two... previous miscreants. And we'll find that out next week. All right. Have a great one. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. And I will talk to you soon. Have a great week. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlit.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlit.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Cravlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.